Hello and welcome to the Yoga Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Sondergaard. I'm a longtime yoga teacher. I'm a self-care coach, an astrologer, and a mom. And I'm so excited you're tuning in today, everyone. I know there is so much to listen to out there in the world, and I'm really grateful for you being here. So thank you. Yoga Magic is a podcast all about self-care, self-discovery, and it's really a place where you can find lots of resources and ideas for how to prioritize your needs, how to take care of yourself so that you can ultimately take care of others. And there are just so many shoulds out there about what you're supposed to be doing for your health and your wellness and your self-care. But ultimately, friends, you are the best expert on yourself. So I hope that this show brings you, it inspires you tons of ideas on things you can do, things that you can apply to your own personal life. Today's episode is so good, if I do say so myself. Today's guest, Chelsea Roth, was such a joy to interview, and I I really learned a lot from her. Today's episode will be discussing health and wellness, self-care, and healing while in eating disorder recovery. I have had the absolute pleasure of working with a lot of you in coaching sessions and astrology readings, and I know that eating disorders are something that many listeners are actively working in healing, and I just want to honor that and how tough that is. You're so amazing for working to overcome that challenge, and frankly, you know any mental health challenge that you're working through right now. If you're someone who has not struggled with an eating disorder, this episode will still absolutely have so many takeaways for you because we dive into the importance of self-love and acceptance and how yoga can help with that. So I found Chelsea a while back on another podcast talking about the importance of yoga for eating disorder recovery. And initially I was like, well, yeah, of course it is. That makes sense. But what I learned and what Chelsea talks about today is that in more recent history, yoga really wasn't one of the tools that was being used in eating disorder healing because it was categorized as exercise, as working out. But what I hope many of you will know if you listen to this show or you practice yoga yourself is that yoga is so much bigger than just the physical practice. You know, it's community, it's connection, it's breath, meditation, it's self-discovery. And Chelsea really embraces all of those limbs of yoga as a part of the healing process. And she herself has personally worked through this. She's transformed her own life and the lives of so many others with her nonprofit, Eat, Breathe, Thrive. So Chelsea herself battled an eating disorder and even suffered a stroke prior to getting into treatment. Today, through Eat, Breathe, Thrive and her work with the Give Back Yoga Foundation in the UK, she combines yoga, meditation, and psychoeducation to help people literally all over the world recover from eating disorders. And I'm just so honored to have her on the show today. So in this episode, we'll talk about Chelsea's personal experience with an eating disorder and how yoga was a tool to help with her healing. We'll talk about the nuance of why yoga traditionally hadn't been used in eating disorder recovery and how that might you know, work for some people and maybe not so much for others. Why Chelsea combines service and community in addition to a physical yoga practice as a part of a holistic recovery experience. How yoga helps us notice our personal patterns on and off the mat. She talks some meditations that can help with your body connecting to the body. How yoga can help people not only recover, but also prevent eating disorders at a young age. We dive into Chelsea's opinion on how yoga teachers can best support their students who might be struggling with an eating disorder. And this was a really good conversation, a really big light bulb for me personally as a teacher. We discussed the deeply personal journey of self-care and how to be discerning about health and wellness culture while in eating disorder recovery. 
And finally, we talk about the amazing free classes, workshops, and resources for anyone that is struggling with an eating disorder. If you're interested in any of the programs, you are a yoga teacher who wants to learn more about supporting your students who might be struggling or are in recovery yourself, please check out Chelsea's work at www.eatbreathethrive.com. The majority of her work is free, especially to those that are in healing or in recovery themselves. Friends, thank you so much for being here in the Yoga Magic family. This content is always free, coming live from my house, (laughs) my heart. And I hear from many of you that you're gathering a lot of insight and tools about self-care and self-discovery. And I'm just, I'm really grateful. The biggest way to give back through this exchange is to simply share this content. Share with a friend who is struggling with self-love right now or is in healing. Share an astrology episode from the past with one of your like, woo-woo, curious, girly friends, <laughs> share share it on Instagram. Really, any word of mouth is the name of the game with podcasts. And I would be so grateful if you did that. So thank you in advance, friends. Okay, you can connect with me at Yoga Magic Podcast or at Ashley.Sondergaard on Instagram. Let's get to this conversation with Chelsea Roth, the founder and creator of Eat, Breathe, Thrive. Welcome, Chelsea. Thanks so much for being on the Yoga Magic Podcast. I am so thrilled to talk about the many things that you have to share with Eat, Breathe, Thrive, and thanks for your time. I appreciate it so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ashley. Thanks for thanks for having me. Chelsea, can you share with listeners just a little journey into how you got here, into doing the amazing work that you're doing, you know? however much you want to share, whatever is resonant with you, um, but really kind of what stuck with you to bringing these worlds of yoga and eating disorder recovery together? Oh, sure. Um, that's a long story, um, but <laughs> let me see if I, I can keep it keep it short. Well, I, today I'm, I sit at um, the helm of a, a nonprofit that brings yoga to people with eating disorders, um, and I came to that work um, personally, um, as somebody that had, had struggled with an eating disorder for a, a really long time, um, probably from the age of like 10 all the way through to 16, um, I had a pretty serious bout of an eating disorder. I, I had a stroke when I was 15 as a, as a result of the oh, illness wow. Yeah, wow. and was hospitalized for almost 18 months. Um, so really, really sick. Um, so I you know, when I say I, you know, that disorder nearly took my life, I, I mean it. I, I feel like I touched death's doorstep. Um, and by the grace of whatever is, you know, life or the universe or whatever you want to call it, um, came out of that alive. And um, I was somebody that went in and out of treatment a lot in my youth. I was, you know, this is common among people with eating disorders, but was in this sort of revolving door of treatment of going into the hospital and coming out of the hospital and into the hospital and out. And even after a year and a half of treatment, I was still struggling a lot. And um, again, by grace, <laughs> what what you want to, you know, whatever that is for you, um, had a therapist recommend I try yoga. And um, I did, you know, the short story is that the practice changed my life. Um, and it really, um, gave me my life back and gave me, I think more than giving me my life back, it, it gave me, um, it helped me find a desire to live again, um, and a relationship Mm. with my body again. Uh, it was tremendously helpful in my recovery, not just in, in those kind of big meaningful senses, but, um, also in, you know, reconnecting with my body and reconnecting with hunger signals and fullness signals and dealing with a lot of the emotions and 
um, trauma that had driven my eating disorder. Um, and I mean, again, how do you <laughs> I could do this in the, the quick version? Got better, went to university, um, studied neuroscience, um, chose yoga as my area of focus because it was changing my life actively at that uh, moment. And I wanted to understand how it worked and why it was so impactful. Um, and I also didn't tell anybody at that point that I'd ever struggled with an eating disorder. So I was looking at yoga for breast cancer and yoga for HIV, but never would never admit that I, I dealt with an eating mm-hmm. disorder, that it was valuable in that way. Um, and then I ended up just out of university um, deciding that actually the truth was I, I knew yoga was valuable for people with eating disorders. And that was really what I wanted my life's work to be about. So I set out to, I did a, a crowdfunding campaign, set out to raise $50,000 in 50 days, wow. which was ambitious and naive probably. <laughs> uh, but I, I managed to do it. I, I got, um, it took a lot. I ended up, this is again, a long story, actually, you'll have to stop me, but um, ended up on a rooftop um, it's like good. You know, <laughs> doing a rooftop yoga strike for a few days to get to the finish line. But ended up raising those funds. And then I was 10 years ago this July and my organization was born. I've been doing it ever since. Oh, congrats. 10 years. That's amazing. (laughs) And like, what a vision, what a vision to have seen that. And my question is really, you had a, you had a teacher, but at the time, 10 years ago, was yoga part of the recovery world? Or was this something that like was sort of unheard of? Oh, it was def. Well, I, I would not say yoga was part of the recovery world at that time at all. Um, I had a therapist who I think had real vision around that and um, knew kind of probably personally for her the power of the practice. And um, I, th- I look back on it now with kind of hindsight and imagine she must have just felt really overwhelmed with my case. And it was like, how, what else can I add here? Because, because it, you know, therapy alone is not going to be enough. But no, when I when I stumbled into my first yoga class, I don't remember there being any conversation about the benefits of yoga for people with eating disorders or people in any sort of form of recovery. Um, maybe a little bit with yoga and addiction. Um, but I, yeah, I, 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 what I heard about yoga is that it was a it was a way to stretch and breathe and really often like more than that, it was a way to lose weight. Um, and if I'm honest, the really the only reason I went to yoga at that time was because it was the only form of exercise that I was allowed to do. Um, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah, I, I probably went for all the wrong reasons. Um, but it, it's a, it's a really sneaky practice. And it, it I, I think it often, you know, you might think you're in there stretching and, um, maybe exercising or maybe, you know, strengthening your muscles, but actually it's um, really a subtle practice that might change, you know, your relationship with your body and your relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. For listeners that aren't um, familiar with really the challenge around something like yoga or um, some movement in recovery, what is, you, know, you talk about it as this like double-edged sword of why wouldn't someone include yoga as a part of their recovery path? And um, you'd even just said like exercise, like for someone that has no idea, what is, why? Oh yeah. Great question. Um, Well, for, 
for people with eating disorders, uh, exercise generally is is what double-edged sword is probably the right word for it, and that's true of yoga. But physical exercise is a double-edged sword because on on one hand, we all know that there are health benefits to physical exercise. But people with eating disorders, and particularly um, what are called restrictive eating disorders, like anorexia, um, they often use exercise as a way of um, hurting their body. So burning calories and, and losing weight to the point that they are, are no longer able to you know, sustain basic organ function, functions. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the eating disorder treatment world, um, clinicians, doctors, therapists, um, uh, have actually for a long time would one would not allow a person in eating disorder recovery or while they're in treatment to exercise at all. Um, and yoga was just kind of lumped into that, that kind of group of problem behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they thought of exercise as eating disorder behaviors and they thought of yoga in the same way. Um, fun, like kind of a weird, um, or not, not a, well, it is a weird fact. Um, I live in the UK now and there's a, a body called NICE, which is the clinical, the body that kind of sets regulations for how you treat different illnesses. And they actually contraindicate yoga. They actually say, do not provide yoga to people with eating disorders because, oh, really? oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so it actually says it, it's not a very long guidelines. And this is the one all, all doctors and therapists and psychologists use to treat eating disorders. So it, um, it's, it, I think that's slowly starting to change, but for a long time, yoga was understood to be purely physical exercise and physical exercise has just sort of been overall eating disorder professionals have gone, oh no, that's not a good idea. I will say though, that is starting to shift and change. And I love how much you talk about yoga as a part of community and even, you know, bringing in volunteerism as a part of that path to continue in recovery. Can you talk about those, those elements that you bring together? Like how do you use yoga for someone that's in recovery? And I guess, help me, are people in recovery forever after an eating disorder or does that at some point you're not in recovery anymore? (laughs) Oh my gosh. It's a very controversial question. Um, Okay. You don't have, it's okay. (laughs) No, 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 no. I, I can, I, I get the, I think the answer to that question, and then I can um, answer your other one about kind of um, service and volunteering and community and in eating disorder recovery. Are you in recovery? Like, are you in recovery forever? Is it like, um, is it like addiction where it's like once you're an addict, always an addict. And that's kind of been a common Mm -hmm. understanding in that world. Um, the, the answer is it depends on who you ask. Every Everybody's experience of recovery is deeply personal. Um, for me, uh, I had I had an experience of having an eating disorder that was very tumultuous. And then I had an experience of being in recovery from an eating disorder, which was also very tumultuous in a different way. It was hard work. You know, every day when I looked in the mirror, I felt shame about my body. I really judged it. I did not like the way it looked. Every day when I sat down to eat, it was a battle to finish my meals. That was being in recovery. And that that lasted a while. Um, and there were different parts of it. Then then there came a time when I wanted to eat, but my body wasn't telling me when I was hungry because I'd ignored my hunger signals for years and years and years. And so there was this rebuilding um, this body awareness that I needed to have a healthy relationship with food. 
And there wasn't a particular moment when that in recovery period ended, but it it did kind of dissipate and a different experience emerged. And that was um, for me, what I, what the language I, I kind of, you know, the only language I know to use is um, being recovered or no longer having an eating disorder. And it feels meaningfully and substantially different than those other two phases. It's, it's not to say that I, you know, I don't feel anxiety sometimes or depression sometimes or that, I never, ever feel insecure about my body, um, but it, it feels so substantially different <laughs> to those other two periods mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. as a real sense of, of freedom from, from what I was experiencing before. And that's lasted for um, 10 years. It's not to say it's permanent, you know, who knows, it could, it could show back up. But, um, but I think it's really, I guess, I'll just say, I think it's really important people hear that <laughs> and and know that some people have those experiences, not everybody. And there's no shame if you don't have that experience. Everybody's experience is different. You know, you 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 might have an experience where daily it's something that you contend with. And there's so many people that have that experience too. But um, I think for a long time, there was no space for different experiences in recovery. You know, there was this, you got told, I got told while I was in treatment that once you have an eating disorder, you will always struggle with this. Um, so I just think it's it's important that that people know people everyone has really different experiences of recovery and um, mm-hmm. there's a big wide open field of possibility <laughs> for you um, and the the different shapes and forms it can take. Thank you for for answering that. That's very helpful. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, your your other question was was about I guess community and recovery is that and really like how you use yoga as a tool for recovery life, you know, in the long term. And I, when I, I asked this because yoga in my mind, and I think in your mind is this like capital Y yoga, it's not just asana, right? It's not just movement. It's, it's working with the community. It's spending time in service to others. And I just, I love that you bring those in. So how does yoga capital Y work as a part of eating disorder recovery? Mm. Um, oh my gosh, I, I could talk to you for hours <laughs> about this. Um, I, I'll try to, I'll zone in on a, a few things that came up as you asked that question. Um, the first is around relationships and community. Um, yes, yoga is a, a physical practice and a mental practice and, you know, a, a spiritual practice, many things. But um, in today's modern practice of yoga, often people do it in relationship with others. And eating disorders are, are so tremendously isolating. They are, um, they're, they're so like, I, I speak to this from the inside of my own experience, but also in working now with thousands of people over the years, they, they're so lonely. Um, often people feel very alone in their struggles. And it's really difficult to climb out of that loneliness when you're in it, um, because you feel shame and it's scary to connect with others. And there's something really beautiful about a yoga practice in that you're with others, but you don't necessarily have to say anything. Um, there's something deeply kind of embodied about it. You're moving, you're breathing, you're in community with others, but it's not this big confronting thing. Um, and even virtually, even now online, there's this opportunity for people to 
um, you know, connect with others without even having to leave their own home and to be in that practice, which I used to think, oh gosh, you know, virtual is going to be not as good as in person, but there's a value to that for people who are, who are really isolated and scared to leave their homes in the midst of um, their disorder. So I think that's really powerful um, aspect of, of yoga and recovery. I think it's um, the, the asana aspects of the practice and the pranayama. So if you're and you're like, what do those words even mean? The poses <laughs> and the breathing practices. Um, those are tremendously, you know, practically useful for somebody in eating disorder recovery. Um, so learning how to um, calm themselves when they're feeling anxiety. Um, often people use eating disorders to cope with anxiety. Um, so that can be really useful. Um, as I mentioned earlier, connecting with hunger and fullness signals. Um, many of us you know, even if you don't have an eating disorder, eat without really feeling, uh, you know, how, what's happening in our bodies. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. We, yes. We might finish our plate because that's how much food is there without noticing if we actually feel full. Um, or um, when we're feeling really kind of lonely or um, lonely, I've used that one too much, but maybe feeling anxious or bored, we might just sort of mindlessly reach toward food as a way of changing our, our feeling state. And so yoga I've found and the, you know, the meditation aspects of that practice can be really good at helping a person to cultivate awareness about one, what's happening inside of their body and also their relationship with, with food. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you get into the deeper aspects of this practice um, you mentioned service and being in service to other karma yoga. It, um, so that's, there's karma yoga, there's there's yana yoga, there's these really deep um, philosophical um, threads that are woven into this beautiful um, tradition um, that we've been, you know, given from from the, you know, peoples of um, Southeast Asia um, who have passed down thousands of years. Those aspects of the practice can, um, I think, I think for a person with an eating disorder, it can feel like the biggest thing in the world or any any illness, any mental health challenge. It's really hard to get out of yourself because the suffering and the pain is so difficult. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. when you're feeling depressed, it's really hard to get out of bed. When you're feeling anxious, it's really hard to think about anything other than that anxiety. And so these deeper elements of the practice, I think, can put that struggle um, in its place can help a person understand their struggle in a much bigger, more cosmic sense of their life experience. And um, I think some of those philosophical aspects, we, we use karma yoga and service a lot of getting out and being in service to others can help you get out of yourself just enough to shake up that state of, of, um, of, struggle a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I, don't, I, I get the sense from your question that you know that, you know, when you're in service to others, whether it's volunteering or taking your dog out for a walk, you know, being in mm -hmm. service to your dog in that moment, it's it's deeply nourishing and it can, it can really, really help in those moments of mm -hmm. um, difficulty. And that actually leads me to my next question. It's something I've heard you talk about before. This idea of discomfort in yoga and being a, a longtime yoga teacher and a student myself, obviously, I totally understand this discomfort. And I mean, and frankly, like it's stress, right? We're actually creating stress in the body on purpose and how that parallels to everyday life, how we can use that tool of stress resiliency 
in our everyday life. How you know? Have you seen that work with with your students working through really embracing that discomfort? A really great. That's a really poignant question, Ashley. Um, uh, yeah, I, I love that question. Uh, I I have. I I think one of the 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 beautiful aspects of yoga and meditation is that we're invited to notice the patterns of our own mind in in the practice, mm-hmm. right? And when pain or discomfort or stress or um, difficult difficulty is showing up in our experience, often our mind has really very patterned ways of responding to that. <laughs> so we might, you know, go, oh, I, you know, I've had enough of this. I think I'm, you know, this is maybe we're practicing yoga at home on a on a YouTube video, and that starts to show up, and you're like, oh, I don't really need to do the 30 minute video. I think I'm done. Um, or, you know, we start thinking about something else, or we start judging the sound of the voice that is, you know, causing us to do these poses, you know, so mm-hmm. judging like this yoga yeah. too. Or we start judging ourselves and going, you know, like, oh, I'm not enough. Why can't I ever do this pose right? Or all, all of those things show show up. And I think a really good yoga teacher and um, uh, uh, and even without a yoga teacher, a really consistent practice um, invites us to notice those patterns. And with that noticing, I think they start to shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have seen that show up in my students with eating disorders, most often in the meditation aspects of the practice, because mm-hmm. that's when they really stir and get, you know, it's during Shavasana, it's during um, meditations when they start to get anxious and those, those, that anxiety and those patterns show up and they want to run. And so the, the real benefit of the practice is staying with that and noticing what comes up and noticing those patterns. Cause I think it helps them do it. Like you said, off, off the mat as well. Mm-hmm. What type of meditation do you work with? Is it sort of like a guided meditation or do you have people practice? I mean, those thoughts coming in and just releasing them? Uh, yeah. The, the meditation I was thinking of at that particular moment, um, we, we do work with a lot of different kinds, but mm-hmm. one of the core meditations I work with, with people with eating disorders specifically is a, is an interoceptive meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a guided meditation that's um, the aim is to help them notice the feelings um, and the sensations specifically that are happening happening inside their body. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do the one we we offer through um, my nonprofit Eat Breathe Thrive. We've actually got it. There's a free version right on the front page of the website. <laughs> you can get. It. <laughs> um, but it's it's a four part meditation, and the first part is noticing sensations. The second part is asking yourself what needs those sensations might be pointing toward. So what might your body be letting you know you need right now? And the third part is is what you've kind of pointed to here, which is noticing how the mind, your mind responds and reacts to the experience that you're having at that mm-hmm, moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, it can be distraction. It can be uh, critic, self-criticism. Sometimes, you know, the mind is just still, which is wonderful, but just noticing the the responses. And I I tend to not ask students to like release, to just let go of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's power in just noticing and observing. Um, and sometimes I find students respond really, we all have different minds and mind stuff. And so I don't want to, I don't want to force my, <laughs> and just release it or let go of it into somebody else's mind necessarily. But 
Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of power in noticing the quality of your own mind and the patterns of your own mind. Because of course, we have to live inside here, our mind that is for your whole life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We're stuck. We're stuck here. <laughs> You're not getting out of it. <laughs> and I bet you studied this because you said you studied neuroscience. Yeah, yeah. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, I, I haven't studied that thing, that aspect specifically, but um, a lot of the work I've done over the past 10 years has been looking at the benefits of yoga for people with eating disorders and also the benefits of yoga in preventing eating disorders. Um, so building that resilience you were just talking about of um, helping people kind of build the skills and the resilience and the traits that stop eating disorders from taking hold. And a lot of where you see that yoga having benefits is um, around those kind of core themes of um, um, having um, awareness of one's body, having self-compassion toward like compassion towards oneself. That's, that's something I wanted to, I, I really wanted to ask you about as a mother, I have three daughters and something that I think about a lot is my love of health and wellness, of embracing that interoception, like listening to what's happening in the body. And also, have you heard the term an almond mom? This is like kind of all over. It's this idea that like kind of like the toxic 80s mom who was like, here, just have an almond for a snack. And I, it's tough because I see how these things happen when you are someone who wants to be as healthy and as energetic as you can possibly be, and yet you don't want to pass on any sort of toxicity to your children. You said prevention of eating disorders, yoga as a tool. Do you do this with kids? Is this something that comes up? Like, how does that play in? Like, how might we know when to integrate yoga in order to prevent a potential eating disorder? Yeah, well, I, I would say probably as early as, early as human, like as possible, as, 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 as soon as they come out of the womb. Literally. <laughs> get going. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not necessarily having them do downward dog, but um, yeah, maybe, maybe you know, while they're in the womb. Even. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I've, yes, the answer is yes, we, we do uh, offer prevention programs um, to adolescents and, and kids um, and I, I'm through my work at Give Back Yoga. I'm pretty involved in um, a lot of the programs that are, you know, happening really, really young, way, way in elementary school. And I think those are really positive um, programs. And I, I guess what I'll say I've learned from our work in schools is that kids, uh, kids these days. I can't even believe it. I sound so old. Kids <laughs> these days. <laughs> oh, kids these days are struggling. Like this isn't. This is not new to them. Kids are struggling with eating disorders and disordered eating earlier than they ever have before. Mm. Um, They're struggling with their relationship with their body. Many kids are on social media really early in life and, um, you know, comparing their bodies to others, especially when they're hitting um, puberty. Uh, So, you know, you're seeing, we're seeing in um, clinical settings and eating disorder treatment settings kids showing up at seven, eight, nine, 10 years old with oh clinical gosh. eating disorders, mm-hmm. um, anorexia, bulimia, um, another one called ARFID is becoming more common. So um, I, I don't think it's really ever too early to bring these practices in. And um, 
part of my work at Eat, Breathe, Thrive has been to, and you alluded to it earlier, to combine yoga with a peer support group format mm-hmm. and things like volunteer um, opportunities so that um, our, my idea kind of early on is I want to help people help one another. Um, I had been, while I was in treatment, and a lot of you know, a lot of the spaces I was in, I was surrounded by other people that were um, also struggling. I was surrounded by these you know, messages that once you have an eating disorder, you always have an eating disorder. And so um, my feeling is that the earlier we can set up healthy networks, healthy peer groups, and um, healthy spaces where kids can talk to one another, adults can get out of the way <laughs> and give them, <laughs> you know, um, a, an opportunity to practice together, um, a format to have conversations that, um, you know, about their relationship with their body, about their relationship with with food and, and give them a little guidance, but otherwise get out of the way. Um, I, I think that's deeply needed uh, mm. in our youth right now. This is so serendipitous because I've been reading a lot about this early onset of just mental healthness, mental health in children, these struggles that they're seeing. And a lot of it, the American Association of Pediatrics is associating it with lack of autonomy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll I'll try to, I'll have to share this article. Um, an economist had really broke it down from like the word they're seeing this in the data. Like it's, there's data. And I, what you're saying, like giving space for our children to just have community to talk without us hovering over them, telling them what's right and letting them discover it for themselves is so, is so real. And, and as a helicopter parent at times, like it's hard, but it, this is, I've, I feel like it's just flooding in this data around giving them that space to grow and learn on their own. And for you to say that as it relates to, you know, how the relationship with their body is changing and growing, I'm just like, oh, that's so perfect. Yeah, I um I, th- I think in both kids and adults, one of the most powerful oh, I'm searching for the word powerful things that you can give a person in any type of mental health struggle is agency, a sense mm-hmm. of agency, mm-hmm. a sense of um, one being at home in their body, but two feeling as if their body is their own and their life is their own, and empowering them to make choices. Um, without that, I think we get into a place of not trusting our own mind, of not trusting our own bodies. And so um, I, I haven't read the article you're, you're speaking about, but it doesn't surprise me at all. I think it's so, so important. We support a sense of um, healthy agency, not like hands off, you know, you're on your own, <laughs> not not kind mm-hmm. of containerlessness, but a um, a real kind of empowering um, whoever it is you're working with, whether they're, you know, um, a, a young person or an adult, not a, you know, oh, well, you're, you're struggling with this. And so, you know, all it, it's a, um, this is your body and this is your mind and this is your life. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. really, I think fostering that is um, critical to mental health. Mm-hmm. I want to switch gears a little because there are a lot of listeners that are yoga teachers that listen to yoga magic. And I remember in my teacher training, this topic did come up. You know, if someone is in, they're actively in recovery, or you, you know, suspect that there might be an eating disorder present, 
you know, what do we do? And nobody really had good answers. The facilitators didn't. It's, it was an area that like, hey, you, you know, this is tough. We don't really want you to get into it. And I think that's probably right. Like as a teacher, we're not <laughs> skilled to be doing any sort of intervention. However, as a teacher, I want to serve everyone. And I know other teachers do as well. How can we as a yoga teacher, use language and supportiveness to help those that are at a yoga class that are potentially dealing with recovery or um, are, you know, there is some eating disorder relationship present. Is there anything that we can do or do we just say, no, <laughs> there isn't? Uh, I mean, I actually, I, so I may be different than a lot of people in in this opinion, but I I think that saying oh no we we it's not our place is a little bit of a cop out. <laughs> I agree. Okay, because that's I, why I have you here. <laughs> not not a little bit, a lot. I actually okay. I think we can do better as a profession, uh, as a group of carers, as a helping profession. Um, this like, oh, well, it's not our role to diagnose. I'm not asking you to diagnose. Sure. <laughs> asking, you know, I'm asking um, you to be a human when you see another human being that's, that's clearly struggling. Um, what I come down to is my first responsibility as a yoga teacher is to keep my students safe, mm -hmm. is to offer a safe practice. That's like fundamental. We've got a whole lot on top of that, but fundamental, it's safety. <laughs> Make sure um, there's safety there. So um, I, I say when I'm speaking to kind of a bunch of yoga teachers that I don't know, I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're offering um, vinyasa practices or heated practices or restorative yoga practices. One thing I'll just flag and I, I, you know, I've led entire courses on this, so I can't speak to it in, in depth in a, a short period, but eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of any mental illness. Wow. So, yeah. Highest mortality rate of any mm -hmm. mental illness. And the principal reason for that is that cardiovascular complications are very common with this illness. Mm. So people's heart stops. It's called sudden death. There's a there's a name for it. Um, sudden death and eating disorders. So um, and it's it's actually not from it's not just from being underweight. People can have cardiovascular complications um, when they have an eating disorder, even when they're at and above a healthy weight. Mm. Um, so, and so, so there's two big things, two big killers in eating disorders. It's cardiovascular complications, which is the biggest. And then second to that, a close second is actually suicide. Mm. Um, suicide rates are incredibly high with eating disorders. People with anorexia are 18 times more likely to die by suicide than the general mm. population. So um, I, I bring that up just to kind of that's why I don't gloss over it when I know or I am concerned that one of my students is struggling with an eating disorder. Um, there's two things that come to mind is, is the physical practice I'm offering, is it is it safe for this person? If I'm offering a heated class or um, a really, you know, kind of fast paced um, aerobic class, they're if I know they have an eating disorder, if they've told me themselves or I can see that they're visibly um, underweight, I, I've, I, I, because I work in this industry, I, I hear about students that die multiple times per year. My whole team does. Mm. So it happens. Um, so I, that's my kind of big thing. Um, and then, you know, there's also the, the mental health reasons to reach out. If, I, if I'm concerned a person has an eating disorder, I think it's important um, to let them know that they're seen and that they're cared about. 
Um, so I, I do connect with that person when I'm concerned. I don't just sort of work it into the language of the group class of like, you know, mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. you're so loved. <laughs> I, you know, do my best, um, if appropriate, if it's a person I've seen in class a, a couple times and there's an opportunity um, to connect with that person, yeah, to have a conversation. And I don't accuse people of having eating disorders if I don't mm-hmm. know, because there's a lot of reasons the person could be underweight. Um, but I share um, directly what I'm seeing that, you know, makes me concerned and express care. And I usually try to come to those conversations with a set of referrals and hands. There's some mm-hmm. ideas for resources um, for if that person, and sometimes the person is already getting help and support. Um, so sometimes there's a conversation about whether this, you know, this really, if I was teaching a really hot and vigorous practice, whether they're really safe at this stage in recovery, there's always, if especially if I have to set a boundary with a student, if I'm, I'm really concerned for their physical safety, the message is, I, this practice can be so beneficial in your recovery. And it can also do harm at the wrong moment in time. Mm-hmm. Like yoga can, um, one, physically, you know, cause the heart rate to rise. So if you're in a really delicate, fragile place physically, it can do harm, but also it shakes our stuff up. Um, and so if a person's feeling um, suicidal or really, you know, kind of not connected to a desire to live, then maybe like maybe this is not the moment in time to start to shake things up and this mm-hmm. practice and me as a, a carer I'm going to be right here for you in that moment in time but it might be best at this moment to a higher level of care and a higher level of support so that you can come to this class and this practice where it can be um, more beneficial so I have to have these conversations at our organization multiple times per yeah. year Lots of times. And we do see people come back. We, we have people go and get into, and you, those conversations usually go tremendously well, but they're done with a ton of care, you know, a lot of thought ahead of time. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I feel like I've crammed a, a huge amount of information into like two minutes for a yoga teacher listening. No, <laughs> I, but I'm glad you answered my question. And that's like, is there a conversation to be had? And the answer is yes. And and I love how much preparation and support that you would advocate for. Like, it, you know, if you're working for a studio, working the manager to understand, you know, this is something that like we're aware. Because usually, and what I've seen is like we see this particular person regularly and we've formed a relationship with them. And so it does make sense if that conversation hasn't already come up to ask them, you know, how they're doing, how, you know, and like you said, be direct, be direct. It's a, it is a very tough position to be in. And I imagine with you at the studio or, you know, within the programs that you're at, you're having it more commonly than someone like me who's just teaching public classes. But I see it, I do see it. And I, I feel really validated in that. Yeah. These conversations do need to happen. So thank you for answering that very tough question. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, we, I've, I go into this in, you know, I'm not just trying to pitch a course here, but I do go into that in real depth in some of our our courses and have some resources. But what I'd say for a studio owner is it it might be a good idea if you're seeing this show up a bit and it's something that's kind of in, in your if it's if it's enough that you're listening to this and you're going, oh, this happens a lot. How would I handle this? 
it, it's a good idea to develop some relationships with uh, mental health professionals in your area. Yes. So that you've got somewhere to refer to. That's a really simple thing is just having an, a network of professionals that you know and you trust that you can refer people to, not just a hotline, but, at, you know, and I that, that can be easily done. It's a search and then a call and it's just like, hey, we're a local studio. We see some people with eating disorders. Um, sometimes I see that you treat people with eating disorders. Are you accepting clients? Do you offer a sliding scale for people that are having financial difficulties? What's the process if I want to refer somebody to you? Mm-hmm. It's really easy. They're generally thrilled to help you. And just having those relationships warm before that person walks through your door can be um, a, a real boon to that process. And they might educate you even more than I am, like mm-hmm. I can do right now around the best way to handle mm-hmm. that, those, those um, experiences. Mm-hmm. I think like any helping professional, a coach, a, a yoga teacher, there's so many you know hats that we wear that that is not going to ever be a problem to have referrals, to have resources, to have a community of healers for people. If we're going to be helping, you know, we do it in, we do it in community, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And, and to that point, staying in your lane, whatever, whatever that is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm a yoga teacher and I'm a yoga therapist, but I'm, I'm not a mental health professional. Mm-hmm. Um, my role is not to diagnose or offer treatment. And so I can, I can offer a practice that can be tremendously useful and tremendously complementary to psychological treatment. But if I've got a student that is dealing with a severe eating disorder, it's above my pay grade if I'm offering a loan. I've got to work in a team of, you say, as you say, healers um, who can help address those other components of the, of the illness and help that person get better, which is help the, them the goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Last question um, before we talk about just what you have coming up, which is so much. This show is specifically works with self-care practices, self-discovery, and it, it falls under the arch of health and wellness. And health and wellness is so buzzy and it, there's lots of opinions and somebody who's immersed in it all the time, I have lots of opinions. And yet I hear from listeners and I get to work with listeners who are in recovery that struggle with this world of health and wellness, of self-care, and how it's been presented to them as something that they have to do, that they have to stay up with the trends. Can you offer any insight into a world where this is a relationship that makes sense, where someone who is in recovery can really embrace health and wellness? And, And this is a big question for like the end of this episode, but what would you say to someone who wants to continue down that path of self-care and prioritizing their own well-being while in eating disorder recovery? Mm. So you're you're kind of asking about like how does a how does a person in recovery navigate a space that sort of uh, got all kinds of little bombs hiding underneath things yes toxicity and 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 kind of diaculture yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like dressed up as (laughs) something else right health and wellness and self-care yes (laughs) uh yeah well i mean to be honest i've i've managed that by keeping one foot planted firmly on the ground the entire time so not taking a full leap into health and wellness culture kind of one foot in one foot out personally um for that reason i i think this conversation about health and wellness culture um you know being you know in bed with diet culture and having a lot of um really body toxic elements that make it very difficult for a person to navigate recovery um 
I think this is a conversation that needs to be had in our um, our space. Um, I, I I guess my my answer to that is is as eyes wide open and also just to give yourself permission to that to navigate your health and your wellness and self-care. And that is, they're deeply personal. You know, I know we've got Mm -hmm. social media and Instagram and all this kind of stuff, but health and wellness and self-care are personal to you. Um, So allowing yourself to, to seek out yoga practice, if that, if that wants, knowing that, and, and kind of trusting yourself after that agency piece that if you walk into a yoga studio, that's promoting a, you know, juice cleanse to, you know, to rid yourself of the toxins, you can walk straight back out and go, no, thank you. And you can also walk up to the studio owner and have a conversation about, you know, why you think that's problematic. In a, in a, in a, you don't have to, but um, I think giving yourself permission to, and, and kind of trusting yourself that you can navigate this space um, to the tune of your own beat and your own kind of um, melody within you um, is really important. And, and also I, I, th- I try my best to disentangle the practices of, yo- of yoga, of meditation, of self-care, um, of nourishing one's body from the culture and the kind of pizzazz around it and the performative elements of that, mm-hmm. that culture. Um, so that that's my own personal um, approach. I'd say be be wary of diet um, culture kind of masquerading as health and wellness. Yeah. Um, uh, be really wary of that because they use all kinds of convincing, you know, ways. They're like, oh well, you know, science says blah blah blah. Uh, <laughs> so you you've got to um, keep your eyes open and and know that if you've had an eating disorder, going on a diet is really the worst thing you can do. Um, fasting mm-hmm. is really the worst thing you can do. Um, there's no amount of recovery that is going to be like, oh yeah, it's a great idea <laughs> to starve your body for 30 days. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then know that there's like loads of spaces in this culture that are actively working against these trends. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. <laughs> you, you can find them. There's teachers out there, there's communities out there that are working, um, yeah, to, to one combat that and also create really safe and supportive spaces for, um, not just recovery, but like true health and wellness and mental and physical health and wellness. So, mm-hmm. um, that's my that's great. Box that's a that. great answer. <laughs> no, I'll take the soapbox because it's, it's a world that we both live in and it's very, Interesting as it continues to unfold and how to be discerning as it just gets, you know, more prominent everywhere. But thank you for answering that. And I want listeners to connect with you because you've just, again, like so much insight and are helping so many people. And I love that so many of your offerings are accessible to everyone. They're all over the world. Can you tell listeners where they can connect with you and maybe some programs coming up? Sure. Thanks for the opportunity. Um, I I mean, the first thing I'll say is if there's anybody listening that is in eating disorder recovery, actively in eating disorder recovery, we kind of our core thing as an organization is that we offer free courses to people in eating disorder recovery every single month. Uh, it's called Yoga for Eating Disorder Recovery. It does what it says on the tin. It is a um, it's a it's a group that's offered virtually, so you can join from anywhere around the world, and it combines yoga and a support group format to and sticks to really key themes to help you in the process of recovery. 
um, really supportive space. So that that's available for you. Uh, if you're a yoga teacher, we've got some, um, we've got free, we try to keep it, we're a nonprofit, so we try to keep stuff as free and open to all as possible. So there is at least one free course for yoga teachers. Um, I was telling Ashley earlier this, um, this month, next week, I think, <laughs> um, we're launching a new course for yoga teachers and yoga therapists um, called um, how yoga, how yoga supports eating disorder prevention and recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do actually talk about kind of that topic of um, how to approach a student that you're concerned about in depth in that course and, and talk about the cardiovascular complications of eating disorders in depth in that course. So that's, um, that's a, an on-demand course, which means you can take it anytime you want from anywhere around the world on your own time. Um, and that's on Give Back Yoga University. Um, and then the, I guess the other two key big things is that I'm um, in every September, I um, help organize a symposium, an online conference called um, Yoga and Recovery, Healing Addiction and Eating Disorders. Um, I was saying to Ashley, our first year we had now King Charles. <laughs> um, back then, he was just a prince as our, our keynote speaker. That's amazing. Uh, speaking about the benefits of yoga from Buckingham Palace. That was surreal. Yeah, I nearly fell out of my chair. Last year, we had Russell Brand. Um, we're just organizing this year's conference, but that's in September. So be on the lookout for that. And then um, last but not least, I can't believe this, but in July, we celebrate our 10th birthday as an organization. So we're doing a huge campaign to raise funds to keep our programs free and accessible for all. Um, And that's running all the way from May till uh, August. It's called Recovery Within Reach. And there's so many ways you can donate. You can host a little bake sale or host a donation yoga class in your community. Uh, you can buy a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> we've got shirts that say like "Everybody deserves love." Um, Eat, breathe, thrive. The whole you know shebang. So there's so so many ways to get involved. So um, if you go to our website, you will find it. It's probably dead center on the website by the time you're listening to this. Um, so that's a would love your support on that. Um, oh, so amazing. Well, I'm so grateful to be connected with you and. I hope that there's just some new supporters and new, you know, individuals your way who are are really going to benefit from this. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you for the opportunity. And it's been a pleasure. You're you're so easy to talk to. (laughs) Thanks again for being here, friends. If this episode touched you, helped you, again, consider sharing it with someone that can also benefit. If you want to learn more about Eat, Breathe, Thrive, please check out the show notes and connect with Chelsea. She's amazing. Thanks again for being here, everyone. I will see you next Thursday.